Wow, what a conference. Has anybody learned anything? It's been absolutely amazing. I've come for years with just a couple of exceptions to this conference because it does impact my life. And in some regard, and I don't mean this in any arrogant way, it has helped me realize that I'm not crazy. Some of the things I think about and ponder in Scripture, you don't hear folks talking much about, and you wonder if there's something wrong with you. And uh, this has just really been helpful to me. We are going to get to Isaiah 37 eventually, but if you would join me in... Page 111, some of this I'm going to go through fairly quickly and then we're going to park a couple of places. But I trust that God will use this session to really help us see the next step. What is the point of having the presence of Christ in our life? What's the point of him putting within us the very Shekinah glory of God? If all we're going to do is sit around and rejoice in the Shekinah glory of God. The premise of this session is this. God intends in every generation, every dispensation, to reveal to the world that he is God alone. And that is not an overstatement. God intends that this earth know that he is God alone. We don't have to be politically correct about it. He is God alone in the United States of America and throughout the world. I want us to seek God's face, ask him to speak to us, and then we'll get into it. Father, we desperately need you. Folks all across this auditorium asked you to come in. And so you are present with us and you are in us. And Lord, we need to hear from you and we need to know, we need to be brought to convincement that the very God that resides within us will use us personally and individually to impact the world. And Lord, the world desperately needs to know you. Would you bring us to convincement that that which you have done in us this week will be used to impact our churches, our communities, our homes, our nation, our world, for the glory of God. Teach us, I pray, Spirit of God, in this time, in Christ's name I pray, amen. The Bible indicates that God reveals that he is God alone by sending his messengers, working with them by miracles or manifestations and producing converts that are convinced that he is God alone. The result of Moses Bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt produced Rahab in the promised land 40 years before they ever got there, convinced that the God of Israel was God alone. 
Daniel and the three Hebrew children brought convincement to the kings of Babylon and Persia that their God was God alone. Yet I fear that we as God's people have been, fail, have been failing to be useful to God in accomplishing his purpose, but God is always working. And I trust that we will see this, that even in the midst of some of the darkest times, God is always working to raise another person up that he can use to reveal that he is God alone. You see, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for somebody whose heart is perfect that he may show himself strong on behalf of that individual. I met this missionary in our own church early on. It was probably right about the time I was processing these things, and he stood in my pulpit and told about an experience that he had. And I thought, now I'm a Baptist, I can't really believe that, I've got to figure out how to explain it. <laughs> but it happened, and when I got to know him, I knew it happened. And I knew it wasn't about him, it was about God. Missionary Daryl Champlin's wife, Louise, is right now writing a book that includes the story of the fire dance. From 1964 to 1968, they had left Chad, Africa during that time of persecution and martyrdom. And they went to Suriname, jungles of South America. People were being saved, lives were changing, attracting the attention of the village leadership. And so they purposed to discredit the spread of the gospel in the villages. The fire dancing witch doctor, Apato, was brought to the village. And I'm reading how Louise Champlin has written this in chapter 14. She was kind enough to send it to me, though the book isn't done yet. Though the missionaries did not participate in such demon center practices, it was made clear to Daryl Champlin that he must come. It was not optional. His wife Louise remained at home praying. An unusually large crowd gathered as folks from other villages came. There was an expectant hush as Apatow's appearance was anticipated. And then he came out of the hut where he'd been communing with his evil spirits. There was a pile of broken beer bottles which he first approached, circling it a couple of times. He then jumped on it and continued the exercise several times, unhurt. He proceeded to the blazing fire amidst the crescendo of shouts, Back road to Nahem Tapo. The demon is upon him. It was loud enough I could hear it at our house through the narrow strip of force that separated us. Apato circling, then jumping on the fire with accelerated shouting. Daryl, watching all this, wondered what he could do to stop the effect this display was having on new believers and some that were close to making decisions to trust Christ. God spoke to his heart. Do the dance that Apato has done and show them that I have power. With a simple, yes, Lord. Daryl took off his shoes and socks and walked to the scattered glass. He stepped on it, <laughs> in his own words, gingerly. <laughs> Not knowing what to expect, but he wasn't hurt. 
Then stopping it with no ill effect as the clamoring crowd took up the cry, evil spirit is upon the preacher. Daryl went to the fire. Stepping around on the hot coals, he was protected as well. The crowd went wild with shouts, but Daryl stood quietly on the bed of hot coals and calmly spoke to them. God had mercy on you tonight. He wanted you to see that his power is greater than that of the devil. You can follow Apato, but he will lead you to hell. But if you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, he will take you to heaven. Make your choice. Apato, the witch doctor, had been shamed that night. The next morning, folks from the village were waiting at Daryl's door, wanting to know how his feet were. Take a look, he said, showing them his unblistered feet. The marveling response was unanimous. God has power. News spread up and down the river. The villagers were impacted by the demonstration of the power of God of heaven. The authority of the preaching of God's word was more readily accepted. It might well have been a reenactment of Elijah on Mount Carmel. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. My desire in this session is to convince you that what's been talked about in this conference is possible, it is essential, but most specifically, it has been promised, but for a purpose. Not simply so that we can go around and say we have the glory of God, but for the purpose that we can be used as vessels of clay with this power, this glory in us, that when people see us ministering and hear us preaching and the witness of God's word comes to their ears, they will know that the power is of God and not of us. Not many wise, not many foolish. (laughs) No, God chooses the foolish things and he chooses people just like you and like me. To impact people with the message of his word to convince them of this one thing. He is God. And he is God alone. I began my journey and there were a number of verses that came to my mind. But one that just jumped off the pages of scripture so many years ago. Was Gideon's question. Oh, my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then has all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles, which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? And I drew the analogy, God had to have saved his people for a reason. I know we didn't come out of Egypt, but we certainly did come from the depths of depravity and sin and bondage. And God didn't save us for no purpose. He had a reason and an intent. Where be the miracles? But now the Lord's forsaken us. He's delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And I'd look around and I'd see this nation turning away from God. And I was thinking, where is the church of Acts? Where is the power of God? 
Where is that manifestation of his presence that reveals to the people around us and to our communities that he is God and that he is God alone? Why is Christianity being mocked? Why are we cowering? When he promised the church that we could go against the very gates of hell and it would not prevail against us. In this dispensation, we do not look for God to deliver us from the Midianites, but we ask, why do we not see more of what has happened in the book of Acts? We too often lack the manifestation of his glory in our church, which is an indication of a lack of his presence, and a lack of his presence will evidence itself in a lack of his power to see God do the greater works that he has promised. God's stated purpose, his eternal purpose stated, Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord, there is none else, there is no God beside me. And the purpose of this session is to convince us that God wants all the earth to know that he is God and that there is none else. Skip to letter E, page 113, stated in the Psalms every morning on our dairy farm, I'd wake up at 5.59 to a clock radio. Do you remember those things? They had these really neat dials. They'd flip down and another number would come up and at 5.59 it would come on and it would come on to a meditation that quoted every single morning, Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. And then following would be a very concisely stated truth about God, but it never quoted the last half of the verse, I will be exalted among the heathen, I will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 83, 18 says it this way, that men may know that thou whose name alone is Jehovah art the most high over all the earth. Stated by Isaiah in Isaiah 46, 9, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. And I found myself asking, where is that God? Why do we not see him? We've learned a lot about that this week. Bottom of page 113 in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 13 through 16 in part, Christ Jesus, which in his time he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. In the book of Revelation, page 114, near the end of the Bible, the canon of Scripture, we read, These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Revelation 19, 16. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I was tempted to put the dozens of verses down for you to have where God says this over and over in Scripture. I'm absolutely amazed. Every time I read through the Bible, I see more and more places where he very clearly states and otherwise illustrates that he is God alone. You can't get away from it. God's eternal purpose is not just uh, uh, stated, but it's demonstrated. God is not an arrogant boaster. 
He's accomplished his purpose to be known as God alone, which has been clearly demonstrated numerous times in human history. David facing Goliath, what did he say? What was his confidence when Goliath came and said, why did they send you out to me? I'll feed you to the birds. And David said, the birds are going to eat, but it's not me they're eating, it's you. And for this reason, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. I'm on page 115, demonstrated when God brought the plagues upon Egypt. Moses reviewing what God had done for the children of Israel just before he passes from the scene in Deuteronomy 4.39 said, Know therefore this day, and you stop and think about it in your heart, consider it in your heart, that the Lord, he is God in heaven above, and upon the earth beneath there is none else. Demonstrated when Nehemiah finished the walls in Jerusalem in just 52 days. Chapter 6, verses 15 and 16 in part states, All the enemies and all the heathen. Think about it, folks. Nehemiah is there building the walls that all the enemies, all the enemies and all the heathen took note. They paid attention. They understood that what had happened in Jerusalem was a work that was wrought of our God. Going back to one C on page 112, it was demonstrated when Naaman was healed of his leprosy in 2 Kings 5.15. And never underestimate, and, and I want to throw these little things in, and I don't have time to park in a lot of this, but never underestimate a calm, quiet comment you make to people about your God. I don't know what that maiden said, but what we read is she said, oh man, I wish you knew about the God in Israel. I wish you knew about the prophet there. Naaman apparently got thinking about that and he goes to the king and that wicked son of Ahab said, what are you sending? Why are you coming to me to heal you of leprosy? Do you think I'm God? See, he knew what the issue was. But Elisha heard about it, and he told Naaman to dip. And he came up with skin like a baby. Naaman said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now, folks, I don't want to overload you, but are you getting this? God over and over is saying clearly, I want people to know that I'm God. I'm not going to be bashful about this. I'm not going to be shy about it. I'm just looking for somebody that I can use as a messenger, as a mouthpiece, to reveal that I'm God alone. It was demonstrated when fire came down as Elijah faced the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, which was alluded to in Daryl Champlin's story 1839 of 1 Kings, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. Yeah, boy. What enables God to manifest himself as God alone? It's his eyes running to and fro throughout the whole earth, and I envision it, envision it this way. God sees the wickedness going on. God sees the perverseness. He sees the lack of faith. He sees the unbelief. Even in the midst of our fundamental circles, he sees it all. 
And as eyes are running across this congregation and I finally begin to see myself in this scenario, God's eyes were running across our congregation in Martinsville and other places all across this world. He's looking for somebody, somebody whose heart is perfect so that he can show himself strong on their behalf. God's not real picky in that regard. The less likely you think you are, the most capable you are to be able to do something that reveals that God is God alone. David, Elijah, Elisha, Hezekiah, Daniel, Jesus Christ, the apostles of the New Testament believed God was able to prove that he was God alone. The blanks one through three there on page 115, one through three. Can't take time to talk about this, but you can look at the story of David, Elijah, Elisha, Hezekiah, Daniel, Jesus Christ, Esther, so many others. You can look at it and you see this common thread concerning all of them. They understood God's purpose. David knew what God's purpose was. He said, you're going to die today, giant. You've held Israel uh, in bondage for 40 days. It had nothing to do with the greatness of David. It had to do with the greatness of his God. And he said, Israel is going to know today that there's a God in Israel. And they did know. Because he understood. And he was committed to that purpose. And he trusted God to accomplish the purpose. I preached a message in our church here a few Wednesday nights ago and after I preached, some of you preachers know what this is like. You're thinking, boy, I wish I'd save that for Sunday morning. But it was one of those sermons where I just was burdened with the fact that we as God's people can quote promises all day long, but we don't believe them. Not even close. Not even close. So it's not that we know the promises, it's not that, but that we're committed to it and we actually believe God's going to do something about his promise. So Hezekiah, I'm back in B, page 114. Hezekiah is an example of one who comprehended and was committed and was confident that God would accomplish his eternal purpose. I don't have time to look at that in great detail, but I want you to be impacted by it. I know you know the story. But in Isaiah 36, in verse 15, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came to the children of Israel and he began to mock them. And he said this, and this, this, to me, this is just powerful. He said, who do you think you are that you're going to stand, stand against me? Great king Sennacherib, king of Assyria, all these other nations had their gods and nothing happened. And then he dared to put Jehovah's name to it. He said, don't you dare let Hezekiah tell you that Jehovah will deliver you. Oops. Oops. And so we come to chapter 37 and you have that section where I'm going to push this thing right off of here. Somebody catch me when I come over the top. <laughs> That's your job, Brother Van Gelderen. We come to chapter 37. And to me, there are no verses more dynamic in all scripture, especially in reference to this subject, than Hezekiah receiving this letter from King Sennacherib. 
And here he dares say, not only have I conquered a bunch of nations, but my daddy before me conquered a bunch of nations, and not a one of them had a God that could stand up to me. Now do you see what we're saying here? All through history this has happened. Pharaoh found out that none of his gods were a match for the God that Moses represented. And Sennacherib's about to find out that there's no gods that match Jehovah God. So Hezekiah gets this threatening letter. He spreads it before the Lord and he says, Lord, you can see what he's saying. He's saying that he and his daddy have whipped gods everywhere. And they're saying that you're not going to be able to stand up to him either. And so this is what he says, oh, Lord of hosts, God of Israel that dwelleth between the cherubims. Yeah, Shekinah, glory God. Thou art the God, even thou alone. See, he understood who God was. He was committed to who God was. And he dared to believe that God would carry out his purpose. You are God alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Incline thine ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which hath sent to to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, he's telling some truth here, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their countries and have cast their gods into the fire. But see, here it is, for they were no gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they have destroyed them. Now therefore, O Jehovah our God, Save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord, even thou only. I'm just asking you, does does that stir you? I mean, does that get you excited at all? Here's a God who has told us what his purpose is, and here are people who believe that purpose and are convinced that God can reveal himself as God alone. Now, you know where we're going with this, don't you? We have the same God today. We have the same glory today. And he wants to show himself as God alone in all the earth. Unfortunately, bottom of page 115, God's eternal purpose is forfeited. And I'm just going to give you the points here. You can go back and look at this and consider it. But we put our desires before God's desires. Of course, this is where Ichabod appears in the Bible and Eli and Hophni and Phinehas die in one day. They take the Ark of the Covenant to battle. But there was no power there because the kind of glory had departed. And the real issue is that Eli, if you just look at an overview of what's said about Eli and his sons, their desires were before God. They had the audacity to take a, a flesh hook and rip out of, out of the sacrifices their own gluttonous desires before God got his portion. How dare they? And we do it all the time. Nothing troubles me more. Than to have church people say, you know, preacher, I'd like to go out on visitation, but man, I'm so busy. And then you hear them stand in the lobby of the church and talk about a basketball game that they watch for two hours or a football game for three hours. We are liars. We've got time, but not for God. 
We put our purposes before God, our desires before God, and we refuse to admit that our sin is impacting the culture around us, impacting the people around us. And so let her see, we end up honoring our children above God's word. Oh, how troubling and how well that will preach in this day. I have never seen children rule homes like they do today. Children making the decisions and parents like a hook in their nose, like a ring in their nose. We used to put rings in bulls' noses on the farm so you could control them if they got out of control. You do know that's why there's a ring in their nose, don't you? It's not so you know they're a bull. It's so that when they attack, you can grab the ring and twist it and they'll fall over on their back. My daddy did that once for me because I got pinned by a bull. That's another story for another time. But our children are running the home. And the disaster of this top of page 117 is that Israel not only lost their power in the day of battle, but Eli lost any possibility of an ongoing influence. God said, I would have established you forever in Israel, but not anymore. And I want these things to sink into us that we cannot stop and belabor them. We have lost the possibility of influencing our culture because we are more important to ourselves than God is important to us. And we have made our children our gods. And we don't realize that it has robbed the church of its power. And so the world no longer knows that he is God alone. I don't know that we as God's people know that he's God alone. We certainly don't see it. We may say it with our words, but we certainly don't see it in reality. But you see, here it is. God continued to set the stage to reveal himself as God alone. I love 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Israel is defeated. Thousands of men die in battle that day, and the Philistines were probably the most surprised that they had won that battle because they saw the Ark of the Covenant come on the battlefield and they said, these are the gods that delivered Israel from Egypt. They said, fight you like men, and they did, and they won. And I think they were a little bit surprised that they did, but they took the Ark of the Covenant and put it in the house of their god, Dagon. Now here we go, totally non-theological. But I wish that Christians could get half the sense that that dumb idol Dagon had. They came the next morning to their temple with Dagon there flat on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. The power had not left. Israel just didn't have it. This dumb God that has no ability to help themselves, they set him back up and the next morning they come and he is broken before Jehovah God. Oh, that we would be broken. Since it's not too theological, you might save that one for a Wednesday night, but I'll tell you what. <laughs> we need to think about it. Yeah. This dumb God, flat on his face before God, his head broken off, his palms broken off, because Jehovah is God. And at the same time that happens, and they have the Ark of the Covenant, and then of course the Umrods and everything else, they couldn't get rid of the glory of God fast enough because it was affecting them. 
But at the same time, the Bible tells us back in 1 Samuel chapter 3 that God did not let any of Samuel's words fall to the ground. This is just a lad. But God was with him. And God was preparing him to be a mouthpiece whereby amazing things would happen in Samuel's day. Why? Because he is God alone and his eyes are running to and fro looking for somebody whose heart is perfect. And Samuel was used. Roman numeral four, God's eternal purpose restored. In Exodus 33, and we're going to take a little bit of time here. In Exodus 33... Way back, about 30 years ago, I came across Exodus 33 and I was just absolutely arrested by it. But in recent days again, and you know the story, Moses is up on the mountain and him and Joshua, uh, he and Joshua come back down and there's noise in the camp and they're dancing around a golden calf and Moses breaks the tablets and God judges his people. And he says in chapter 33 and verse 3, I'm not going to go in the midst of thee anymore. Oh, this is powerful. I know we're not Israel. But I'm telling you, we need God in the midst of us. And Moses knew he needed God in the midst. And so the tabernacle is pitched way out away from the camp. And if you want to go talk to God, you go without the camp. And you seek God's face, but Moses is seeking God in Exodus 33, verses 12 through 19. And I'll try to summarize it fairly quickly. In verses 12 through 14, Moses desires to know God. He says in verse 13, show me now thy way that I may know thee, that I may find grace. That it may find grace in thy sight. We need to find grace in God's sight in this day. He said, consider that this nation is thy people. And God promises that his presence will go with Moses according to verse 14. Moses isn't done in verse 15. Moses says, if you do not go with us, not just me, but us. This challenges me as a pastor. Just about every pastor here has been willing to trade his congregation in on numerous occasions. For a new people. And I don't have time to go to it in Numbers chapter 14. When God said to Moses, step aside, I'm done with this nation. I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses said, no, no, remember, you got a covenant relationship. You're a God that can take broken people and bring them to the promised land and do miracles through them. And so Moses says, no, not just me. You've got to go with us. If you don't go with us, don't take us any further. Verse 16 is very important. Moses wants God to go with Israel, not just with him. How will it be known that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? How are they going to know that the church of the living God has found grace in his sight if he does not go with us? I'm afraid that people don't know a lot of times. So he says, you've got to go with us. By this, they will be distinct. They will be separate from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. Do you see it again? God, you take these people, these stiff-necked people, these calf-dancing people, 
These people who have the very glory of God manifest right there beside them, the mountain smoking and quaking and shaking. And like Israel of old, we find ourselves of the very glory of God within our being, and we are dancing around the golden calves of our culture. What's wrong with us? And it's in that context, Moses goes before God and he says, you've got to go with us. And so God says, okay, verse 17, I will go with you. And Moses says, if that's the case, then show me your glory. The very essence of who you are. Wow. That boy had guts. There's been open communication between Moses and God and the full essence of God still cannot be seen by Moses. You know the arrangement that was made. God will pass by. Moses will be hid in the cleft of the rock and God will put his hand over him when his full glory passes by. And then after God gets past, he'll take his hand away and Moses will see the hinder parts of God's glory. God says the fullness of my glory, my face you cannot see. So in Exodus 34, this all takes place. Moses goes back up on Mount Sinai with two tablets, two tables of stone like the first. And there the Lord says, I'll pass by Moses. And so in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, God passes before Moses and proclaims his essence. Now this really is the essence of this session. What did God do to reveal his glory? Did he shake the mountain? Did he throw down fire bolts of lightning? Did he break the rocks? Another one had the same type of an experience. Elijah, as he is brought back to usefulness by God, God speaks to him simply in a still, small voice. That was God's glory that day. Wasn't the shaking of the mountain or the breaking of the rocks or the mighty power of the wind. It was God in a still small voice speaking to Elijah. And here in this moment, God declares his glory, the fullness of his glory as he's passing by. He says in verse 6, Jehovah, Jehovah God. Merciful. Gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that will by no means clear the guilty. I think there's a point to be made here that we all need to get a hold of. I pastor imperfect people. My people are pastored by an imperfect pastor. And this really helps me because when God wants to manifest himself to Moses and when God says, okay, I will go with you, Moses says, show me thy glory. And God says to Moses, here I am. I am a God of mercy. I'm a God of grace. I'm a God that is long suffering. I'm a God that forgives sin, transgression, iniquity. Now, I don't want to be disrespectful, but this is pretty amazing to me. Moses says, I got gotcha. you. 
Not in a disrespectful way. I think he said, I get it. I get it. Notice what Moses says. Notice how he responds. Moses made haste, verse 8, bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, if now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee. Are you there with me in Exodus chapter uh, 34 and verse 8? Or verse 9, rather. If I've now found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee. What's the next three words? I wish that would burn on the heart of every layperson, every pastor here this morning. Moses said, okay, here it is. We are a stiff-necked people. We are people that dance around golden calves of our culture. But we are your people. And if you are a God of mercy, if you are a God of grace, if you are a God of truth, if you are a God that is long-suffering, if you are a God of goodness, then you can go among us because that's your very essence. Somebody said it earlier in a conference, God can't help himself. He wants to forgive his people. Now, if you want to get careless about your sin and say, oh, good, I can go home and live like I want and God will still go among us, he said, but don't forget it, Moses. I will, when the day of judgment comes, I will judge. We're supposed to be reminded of that with every communion service. You partake unworthily as you enter into that holy presence of God, rejoicing in the provision for the Shekinah glory to dwell within us, and you partake unworthily. Some of you are sick and some of you have died. So God by no way says, I'm going to just ignore and overlook the sin of, of my people, but I am a God of mercy and I am a God of grace and I am a God of goodness. I am a God of truth and I am a God that's long-suffering. I am a God that does forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. And in this verse, I found hope for my congregation, but more importantly, I found hope for myself. God will go with me. If I don't act pretentious, and presumptuous, but simply understand that I'm a sinner saved by grace. And I have a God that wants to go with me more than I want him to go with me. And so when Moses is seeking God's face and says, I've got, you to go, I've got to have you go with us, show me your glory, God says, okay, let me communicate to you who I am. I'm a merciful God. I'm a gracious God. I'm a long-suffering God. I'm a good God. And notice what God says to Moses. Moses says, go among us for we are a stiff-necked people, verse 9. You've got it right, God, so pardon our iniquity. You just said you're merciful. Pardon our iniquity and our sin and, and take us for thine inheritance. And God says, I'll do it. And here's how God responded. He said, Behold, I make a covenant before all thy people. I will do marvels such as ye have not, such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among which thou art shall see the work. All the people, all these nations, everybody around you, and they did, and they feared. They feared God more than Israel did sometimes. All the people among which thou art shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible thing 
that I will do with thee. It's an amazing, awesome thing that I'm going to do. Well, with that backdrop, I want to bring us to the New Testament church. We can't expect God to do marvels in the church that reveal he is God alone, not because we are Israel, but because we are his glorious bride. He does have a covenant relationship with us. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Ephesians chapter 5 says that we are his bride. He does love the church. He gave himself for it that he might present it to himself, a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That the church should be holy and without blemish. It's God's very nature to reveal his glory, his essence, by taking imperfect people, not perfect people, but imperfect people, stiff-necked, stubborn, thick-headed, and bring us to a place where he can say, I'm proud of you. I love Ephesians 5, I believe it's verse 6. He says, I want to put you as a display on my mantelpiece of love that you're the ones I redeemed. You who in time past were dead in trespasses and sin. But God who is rich in love for, love for his great mercy wherewith he saved us however that goes, that I might put you on display in the ages to come. These are trophies of my Grace. God wants to do that in the church. In a church that dances around the golden calves of their culture, the early church knew they had this treasure in earthen vessels, but what does that look like? In the Old Testament, God being with his people was often evident by defeating mighty nations, nations greater than they were. But God doesn't have to utterly destroy nations to reveal his glory. Instead, he reveals his glory by saving souls, changing hearts, making people new creatures in Christ Jesus. No other God can do that. So on page 117, Jesus Christ is born. And he's brought into the temple on the eighth day to be circumcised. And Simeon takes Christ up in his arms and he said, Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Pay attention, a light to lighten the Gentiles. Hallelujah. And the glory of thy people Israel. I was given many years ago by a saved Jew that attended our church this picture. It's by Ron Deshani. It's not how it looks like it's pronounced, but I looked it up and listened to it pronounced for me a few times. Deshani. Do you have that picture? And I don't know how well you can see it, but this is Simeon holding the Christ in his arms. And this Jewish lady was so pleased, and mine's just a print of it, but she was so pleased to give it to me, and she paid a ton of money for it. And I fear that when she gave it to me, I didn't have the sense of appreciation that I should have. But it has grown on me since then because I have finally gotten a hold of what Simeon understood. He's holding in his very arms the glory of God. God's glory had returned to Israel, and he knew it. 
And this artist grew up on the near north side of Chicago and he was going through his family Bible that was sitting there on a table somewhere and he saw the pictures, he was captivated by them and he made up his mind he was going to begin to portray the Bible. He said, my life mission is to portray the Bible in picture. He said, I'm an artist disguised, or I'm a Christian disguised as an artist. And he has painted some amazing pictures. But I don't know if there's any more glorious than this. And for years now, almost every Christmas, I hang that picture on the front of our pulpit and invite people to come and see the reality of what Christ meant to Simeon. The glory of God had returned and the possibility that Gentiles would be lightened with this light, with this light and that we would have that glory manifest in the church. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full, <laughs> full of grace and truth. God's glory in the church is evident. God manifesting Himself as God alone is evident by what He taught concerning prayer. This has been dealt with so many times in this conference, Luke chapter 11. But about two or three years ago, I was studying this again, and G. Campbell Morgan helped me see some things I hadn't seen. As I look at the Lord's Prayer, as we call it, we know it's the pattern prayer, the prayer that the Lord gave to his disciples when they said, Lord, teach us to prayer, pray. But as I look at that, and I just step back from it and don't look at all the individual words, I summarize that prayer in these three areas, God's desires being accomplished. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is God willing that any should perish? No. Is God willing that the world be reached in our generation? Yes. Is God willing that souls be saved? Is God willing to set people free, not simply healing the blind and the lame and the leper, but taking away the sin and the bondage that has held us for years? His glory... His will be done. And then the central part of that prayer, I just summarize it as his care being experienced. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us and lead us not into temptation. God, we are vulnerable people. We need you with us. We are stiff-necked. We do struggle. We have desperate needs. God, please take care of us. But then Luke does something that is fascinating. He doesn't finish the prayer. He illustrates the finish of the prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. But Luke says, ask for the Holy Spirit. God will give it to you. Ask for the manifestation of the Spirit of God in your life. We know that we have the Spirit, but I still believe that we can ask for him to manifest himself and his glory in our lives. And then something I'd never seen, but G. Campbell Morgan believes that the next several statements in Luke chapter 11 are illustrating that point that if we have the Spirit of God in our lives, these things will re be real. Christ is more powerful than Satan. Verses 14 through, Satan, through, through uh, 20, Satan has power, but Christ accesses. And this is really what got me going on this study, the finger of God. Even if you don't know what that is, do you think that's good or do you think that's bad? 
Well, it depends on which side of the finger of God you're on, I guess. But they're accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. He said, no. He said, I got the power of God. I've got the finger of God. There's more power in the finger of God than all the host of demons put together. He said, I've got the finger of God. And so as we're praying this prayer, I think one of the things that God wants us to get a hold of thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Remember that Satan has power, but you have access to the finger of God. Amen. Christ has spoiled Satan. Satan is the strong man, but Christ is stronger than Satan. Hallelujah. A passion for Christ must fill our lives. A life cleansed is worthless. And will bring us to increased bondage if we are not filled with the presence and the reality of the Spirit of God in our lives. And I fear that for myself and for you. You come to this conference and in this atmosphere, how can you help but surrender yourself to God and open yourself up and say, Lord, please come in. But we go home and you know what it's like. Life is real, isn't it? And sometimes life is real ugly. And Satan will do everything he can to you in the next week to convince you that every decision you made here was pointless. And I'm telling you, it's not. But you've got to take that life that God has given you and that heart that God has restored to fellowship with him and surrender to him every day. Let his presence, his essence fill you. The reality of who he, who he is or you'll find yourself in increased bondage. Obedience, letter D to God's word, is our source of strength. Our parents nurtured us, but God wants to empower us. And our power will be proven. And I don't have time to go into how G. Campbell Morgan, and I sat there and thought about it, and I thought, you know, I think he has something, but he said, you know, you're looking for a sign. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. One day I'm going to rise from the dead. And that changed everything for the disciples, yes? And that change was manifest on the day of Pentecost. They didn't dare go forward until they had prayed and God's promise of the Comforter had come and they had experienced it. They had tried on their own. They had failed miserably. They had betrayed Jesus Christ. They had followed him at a distance. They had said, except I thrust my hands into the wound in his side, I will not believe. What happened to these guys? Jesus rose from the dead. And they said, we'll never go another step without him. And they prayed and they sought his face. They, I suspect, followed this pattern prayer in some regard. And they said, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. We need the spirit of God. And when he came, the world had no doubt that he was God and he was God alone. They knew it. Page 119, evident by what Christ demonstrated in his ministry. People knew what he was saying when he said, I've, I'm going to forgive you of your sins. Only God can forgive, exactly. He's God alone. Christ at Gadara, he goes through a storm just to heal this demoniac of Gadara. A legion of demons within him Set free, I want to remind you that that demon-possessed man had a mommy and daddy at home. 
He had brothers and sisters more than likely. He had friends that he used to play with. He had people that were wondering if he would ever be set free, if he would ever be normal, if he would ever come back. And Jesus healed him and he came back. And he published to his family and friends the greatness of the God that delivered him. I'm saying to us this morning that there's nothing that will revitalize our church like seeing people set free from the power of Satan. Not to just follow him, but to go back to their home, to their family, to their brothers, their sisters, their playmates and say, hey, God changed my life. A guy by the name of Justin just preached in our Men for Missions this last Saturday. He just celebrated his one-year anniversary. He gave a testimony in our church on his one-year anniversary of being free from drugs and alcohol and the immorality and the jail, as he called it, Morgan County Hotel. He said, if you had told me a year ago I'd be standing in front of here you saying what I'm saying, he said, I would have told you you're absolutely crazy. But he said, God has changed my life. Amen. And he preached with such confidence. And I'm telling you, and the reason that I'm saying some of these things is because not we have a great church, but I'm telling you the power of God can come upon people's lives and change them for all eternity. And I found myself, like many of you, saying, where is the God of salvation that changes lives? Where is the God that really saves somebody? Well, he really saves people. But there's a lot of baggage that comes sometimes. But Justin Helmet got Jesus, and his life has changed. He's been set free. I think about Christ's ministry to the woman at the well. And I love the testimony that she gave. She didn't go to the men of the city and say, let me tell you about somebody who loved me, though Jesus did. Let me tell you about somebody who forgives me, though Jesus did. Let me tell you about somebody who is sensitive, though Jesus was. She said, let me tell you somebody that laid bare my sin. And in that moment, she knew she was free. And the men of the city came to see Jesus because she said he knows your sin. You see, the power of Christ can deliver those that are chained by sin, but it can deliver those that are shamed by sin. That's the woman at the well. She was a religious person. Read the passage. She said, I suspect you're a prophet. I know Messiah's coming. She went to church. She just didn't go to the church that others went to. But she had made some bad choices, had five husbands, and the man she was living with wasn't her husband. Our culture is filled like people with people like that. Go reach them because they'll change your church. The presence of God will come into your church in a manifestation of changed lives. Because they experienced his mercy, they experienced his truth, they experienced his grace, they experienced his forgiveness, and the glory of God has shown up. Now, the whole point of this session is this. I, when I was younger and when I began on this journey, I, I literally prayed a couple of times, God, shake our church today. Do something. Shake the church. Well, he could, but he never has. But he's done something more significant. He's reached lives. He's impacting our community. 
The glory of God is showing up and I wasn't even seeing it. Now listen, not like, not like I long for, not like you long for, but I've got to start with something and God has given me something to hang on to because when God does a little bit of something he promises, I begin to think he's going to do a lot more of what he promises. Many of you know our testimony in reference to our ministry. We found ourselves just about 11 years ago now under seven foot of water. A flood hit our community in a place where there wasn't even a river there was a little creek but there was something in that creek because we had a catfish in our basement that was 39 and a half inches long I don't know where that thing came from the creek wasn't even big enough to get your toes wet in the summertime But God began to do some little things. And you know, those of you that have come to this conference, you know that this is the issue that changed my life to dare to believe. I could ask things of God that I didn't specifically see in his word. I could ask things of God that were desperately needed and he would hear it and answer our prayers. And God began to do stuff before I asked him. And I thought, well, it'd be kind of nice if I asked him ahead of time. We were so busy in that time, didn't have time to send out emails and letters and make phone calls. I never called anybody, never told anybody, but people started calling and saying, we heard that you were flooded. And God began to do things, but there was something that was holding us up. Drywall had been donated and screws and tape and mud and all kinds of stuff and paint, but we didn't have any insulation. And I said to our staff one Thursday, I think it was a Thursday afternoon, I said, we've got to just stop and pray for insulation. We can't do anything until we get the insulation back in the walls. We prayed and Monday morning all the insulation was there. I don't know where it came from, except that God brought it. God did so many things that I began to dare to believe, to ask him for the big things. You know, you ask him for the little things, kind of the safe things that you know he might do. But boy, the big things. We had some power panels that had to be replaced. One was $5,000. The other was $2,000. We didn't have any money and the insurance wasn't going to do anything for us. We tried to convince him it was seepage. <laughs> that didn't work and that would have only gotten us $10,000, but it would have been something. Ordered the power panels by faith. We didn't have the money. We committed that we weren't going to borrow money to restore the facility. And in 52 days, God restored that facility. Those power panels were sent to Minneapolis. Came out of Mexico. I guess they couldn't read real well. And they sent it to Minneapolis instead of Indianapolis. We said, Lord, we need the power panels. There was a man in our church that was going to install them. It would have taken hours and hours. It was going to cost a lot of money if we hired somebody and he had the ability to do it. Well, when they finally came, four days until school was going to start, so we hired the company that ordered them and the company had helped us and donated so much stuff for us. They came and installed them and the bill came. Power panel, $7,000. Installation, another $7,000. Balance due, $14,000. And my heart sunk. I don't have $14,000. My eye ran down the bill and I saw another $14,000. Oh no, $28,000. And I read it, flood relief, Martinsville Baptist Tabernacle, $14,000. Balance due, zero. 
And that happened over and over and over again. And that is what God used to convince me that if he would do it for power panels and drywall and flooring and paint and ceiling tile, he would do it for souls that were desperately lost, messed up with sin. And I began to recognize what the glory of God was. It wasn't the shaking and the smoking, though God can do those things. It wasn't walking on hot coals of fire, though God can do that too. It was God taking lives that are messed up with sin and restoring them to wholeness. My God can do that. And so for me, the test in a sense was for God to save a homosexual And he has. And when I was in Bible college studying to be a preacher, his life has changed. That's the glory of God. It's the glory of God. I was with Pastor Van Geldern when we were at Caesarea Philippi and he pointed out the pagan culture of Pan and Jupiter and just the horrendous culture. And it impacted me again. Though this isn't theologically correct as I saw that rock plateau and the sheer rock wall and he read the passage of scripture and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it upon this rock I will build my church and I thought what a visual confession of Peter the person of Christ I thought, no, the rocks of Caesarea Philippi, God's going to build a church right there. And what was considered the gates of hell of that culture of that day would not prevail against it. But boy, the disciples had a vivid picture of the Christ that they served. Satan himself would not prevail against the church. There's many other things we could say. Brother Gilmore is going to cover some of that in reference to his session. But whether it was the Apostle Paul in Athens on Mars Hill saying, let me talk to you about a God that's not made with gold or silver or stone. Let me talk to you about a God that commands every men everywhere to repent because one day the resurrected Christ will judge the world and the result is that certain men clave to the Lord. That's the glory of God. Corinth, the same thing. Thessalonica, they turn to God from idols to serve the living God in Ephesus. Though they cried out, great is the goddess Diana of the Ephesians. The silver shrine's industry had already dried up because people had learned to serve the living God. Throughout Asia, people were moved to serve the God, the King of glory. I'm just saying to you, God's passion is to reveal his glory in the church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, I've loved that verse for ages. That God can change us into the same image from glory to glory, us, me. And I used to sit there and ponder that verse and I'd say, maybe some, but no way me. And I still honestly say that sometimes. Maybe some, but no way me. But I knew what it meant. At least I believed I knew what it meant. I believed that it meant that I would manifest the glory of God in a greater way than Moses coming down from Mount Sinai. And that that glory of God dwelt in these vessels of clay. 
And so in 2 Corinthians, and I probably better turn and read it because I won't be able to quote it right. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. I've got a couple of pictures I want to show you as I finish up here this morning. If you could show us that first picture that I gave you. Dr. Steve Smith is here and he digs in Israel. This was found in the region of Samaria. But something that was absolutely essential to the church is this right here. This represented the Holy of Holies. He tells me, now, Pastor, this is a mosaic and this is an icon. It's not a picture. I say this is their logo. They were branding their church. Their church was about the Holy of Holies and the glory of God. And this is a representation of the Shagina glory. Sometimes it's just just uh, like rays going all the way across, but it's all over the place in the early churches. The church of God, access to the Holy of Holies. And the veil, most strikingly in this mosaic, is away from the Holy of Holies. Because now the Shekinah glory dwells in us. And if you'd show the other one, please... I'm not going to take time to read what this is. I have it in my notes, but again. Oh, you don't think I know, huh? All right. (laughs) Dr. Smith is Dr. Smith because he has a degree in ancient languages. Here's the Holy of Holies again, except instead of the Shekinah glory, you know what this is here? This was their icon. Did I say that right? Thank you, brother. Trying to embarrass him. That is their branding of the church. That represents the church. In the Holy of Holies. I don't know why there's one there and one there, but what I'd like to read into it is they knew that they were in the Holy of Holies and the Holy of Holies was in them. But then they took it out to the world and represented... God and his holiness to the people around him. And the world was literally changed because they knew they had the glory of God and they weren't going to give it up. Let's bow our heads before the Lord. Father, we've got to get this. There's so much more that could be said. But you are already working and I would ask first of all that those who are somewhat like me We sometimes have a problem claiming the big things that you promise until we see you doing the little things. And Lord, I've been privileged for a few years now to see you doing the little things, changing lives, saving souls. Lord, new people in the church every single week without exception. Lord, our county jail just heard last week when we started that Bible study, 
398 inmates is down to 236. And they're wondering what's going on. And our chaplain said, do you think maybe God's doing something? Lord, just little glimpses. Administration of the jail coming to us and saying, could we have a prayer meeting? Them coming to us. And the sheriff saying, yes, I need prayer every day. Let's do it. The commander of the jail saying, yes, absolutely, let's do it. The matron of the jail asking, could you please pray for us? So starting this week, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, 9 o'clock, prayer being offered in our local county jail. God, your glory is everywhere. Help me to see it. Help me to be excited about it. And help me to believe you for the greater works. Prepare our hearts for the next session that we would know without a doubt that you are moving and convincing this world that you indeed are God and there is none else. Thank you for revealing yourselves to us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.